Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. You may have surmised this is my podcast. Uh, we are marching along. We just hit uh, 12,000 subscribers on YouTube. We have nothing but five-star reviews on Spotify, um, 80, over 80,000 followers on Twitter. Things are happening. I have no idea what's going on. My life makes no sense. Um, but do me a favor. If you're watching this on YouTube, just make sure to give me a thumbs up, like, share, subscribe, all that stuff. Um, if you love it, please share it with your friends. And if you hate it, please share it with your enemies. Let's get right into it. Now, today, I'm sure that uh, my guest needs no introduction to many of you, but uh, just in case, uh, this guy, uh, A, I'm talking to a British person on the 4th of July, so that might be some sort of sacrilege, but um, he is a rapper, a commentator, a philosopher, a, all kinds of things. He, he flies around in helicopters. I'm pretty sure he's, uh, he's pretty loaded. And I, I, thought, I thought to myself, you know, this is the kind of stuff that uh, celebrities uh, uh, do, you know, you're getting called into to, to, uh, on news programs, you, you know, you're selling books, you're doing all kinds of stuff, and it's just you. And so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, uh, someone named Zuby, who has uh, exerted so much influence, um, particularly in the last couple of years. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I came on your show, um, how long ago was it? Was it maybe a year ago? Mm, I want to say... Was it late? Was it late 2020 or early 2021? Oh, gosh, I don't remember. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we had this long conversation um, after we had stopped recording. And uh, you 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 talked about um, art and religion and uh, or art and God. And uh, we just hit on it briefly. And it kind of sent me I think I have you to thank for sending me on this kind of journey. And uh, a big part of this particular show has been about um, and even the past couple of years, you know, even as someone who is not a believer, I'm like, you know, there, but there's something, it seems to be there's something missing. There's a mm -hmm. void. Uh, conservatives often talk about the God-shaped hole. I've spoken to many other conservatives about this, um, but particularly in art, it seems kind of, um, well, not art, just culture in general. There seems like in society, there's something that's sort of missing. We think of ourselves as sort of rational. We have all these cool gadgets. Uh, we, we quote unquote, follow the science, um, but yet it doesn't seem to be enough. So, uh, you know, I think I have you to thank for sending me on this journey about uh, thinking about transcendence and just a higher, a, a different sort of, maybe a spiritual plane, maybe even a spiritual journey in terms of mm -hmm. how I approach um, um, art and life. So thanks for that. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I had no idea that that uh, little conversation we had, it had such an impact. So that's amazing to hear. Yeah, man. well, it's it's kind of um, nuts because you know, the, these ideas of transcendence and these ideas of um, uh, there's some sort of I, so I used to think it was corny, right? When I was in like my actor training, and you would read these sort of old um, old acting theory texts um, from like Russian authors, and they would always say you know, treat it as if it's, treat the theater as if it's your church. Um, mm. You know, acting is a sacred, it's a, it's a sacred craft. And, you know, when you're focusing, you, you know, you're, you're, you have all these things that are living through you. You're stepping into this tradition that's thousands of years old, yada, yada, yada. And I used to be like, I mean, all right. I mean, I just, <laughs> if, if, if you say so, but, but, um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, were you, were you always, you, you, I'm presuming you were raised a uh, Christian. I'm, I'm presuming you're Christian. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm a Christian. Um, I was raised a Christian, everyone in my immediate family. And as far as I know, everyone in my wider family and 
I'm from a really big family. Uh, my dad has, my dad is one of 11. Uh, my mom, one of six or seven. Nice. I got 50 plus first cousins. Oh my God. Even more than that second cousin. So uh, yeah, our family tree is gigantic. So I was, uh, so to give people some background, I mean, I was born in the UK um, to parents who are originally from Nigeria, from Nigeria, um, Igbo tribe to be specific. So Not from the, the yeah, from the, from the Southeast. So, uh, <laughs> so that's where I was born. Um, I grew up actually in Saudi Arabia, so definitely not in a Christian country, but I grew up in an expat community surrounded by people from all over the world, from the Middle East, the USA, Canada, UK, various parts of Asia, just all over, like true, true diversity in the realist sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the American schooling system, actually, from kindergarten up until fifth grade. And then when I was 11, I went to the UK for boarding school. So from the ages of 11 to 20, so throughout my secondary school education and my university education, I was still living in Saudi Arabia, but I was spending every term in the UK studying. So I was going back and forth between these two countries, got the Nigerian heritage, and then also from a young age, heavy exposure to American culture, American people, American history. People can even hear in my accent. I probably don't sound like your typical Brit. And so I've always been surrounded by a range of different cultures and people. In terms of how I was raised, I was raised going to church. It wasn't actually every Sunday. It was every Friday because in Saudi Arabia, the weekend is Thursday and Friday, not Saturday and Sunday. So Friday, yeah, Friday is the Islamic holy day just like Sunday is the Christian one, Saturday is the Jewish one. Um, And so I would go to church on Fridays. Now in Saudi Arabia, there's no actual church buildings, but in the community I lived in, we would have church services either in the school gymnasium or in the community theater. So it was a church service and there, there was a church community. In fact, there were, there were two, there was the Protestant church and there was the, the Catholic church as well. So their service would normally follow ours. Um, I'm a Protestant and yeah, I go to Sunday school and I was raised having family prayers. We still, we still have our family prayers uh, multiple times a week. And yeah, I've, I've never, I've always been a believer. Um, I've never, as you get older, of course, as you go into your teenage years and your early twenties and so on, you start to question things more and, mm-hmm. you know, ask questions and look at things from different angles, talk to a lot of different people, have debates, have these different perspectives. But for myself personally, I'm not someone who really ever had a, I, I, not, not really. I, I never had a lapse in my, in my belief. And I actually think that I myself, not just religiously, but with most things, I like, I get my beliefs challenged a lot all the time, as you see on social media, but right. I challenge my own beliefs a lot, right? I have a I have daily dialogues and conversations in my head where I myself I'm constantly debating ideas and different positions and questioning what I believe in and so on. But in terms of some background, just kind of set the stage, that's the background that I come from. That's interesting. I was reading um there's a, a fantastic um I gotta go back and finish reading it. There's this great um, multi-volume series by a guy named Taylor Branch um, uh, called uh, "What Is it? America During the uh, During the King Years." It's about Martin Luther King, basically. And, and uh, it's, when you when you talk about 
uh, always questioning, he was doing the same thing, you know, with mm -hmm. his own beliefs. So I just uh, those parallels though, that's what it made me think of. But it makes me curious about like, so when, when did you first say to yourself, okay, I need to rap? What was that first spark of like, okay, this is really cool. And I, I mean, I know you mentioned uh, being, a, being exposed to American culture, but what was the thing that just motivated you to say like, this is what I want to do? Yeah. So I fell in love with hip hop when I was about 12 or 13 years old. So actually when I was in boarding school over in the UK, my brothers were big hip hop fans. They'd listen to, you know, they're seven to 10 years older than me. So they were into music of that time, Wu-Tang Clan, uh, Buster Rhymes, a little bit of Nas and Jay-Z, Tupac, right, right. All, all of that stuff. So I, I'd hear that music coming from their bedrooms and stuff. But I wasn't actually a big music fan in general when I was a child. I used to play piano, but I generally wasn't a fan of music myself. Then I went to boarding school. Um, I was in an all-boys school for two years, and mm. I just started listening to various rappers. This was when Eminem was just first starting out. Um, we'd listen to like Ice Cube, Snoop, Dre, Nas, Jay-Z, various artists, LL Cool J. These are some of the artists that, that got me into hip hop as a fan. And then that blossomed as I went into my mid teens and you had all these new artists coming out like Kanye West and 50 Cent and right, you know, right. G-Unit and Dipset and all of that, that whole era. Um, I actually wrote my first rap when I was in university. So I was traveling. I was actually, um, my first rap came out of boredom. I was going from London to Nigeria and I somehow had a layover in Paris and my mm. flight got delayed. I was by myself. I was bored. I didn't, didn't have much to do, but I had my MP3 player and I had a, I had a pen and a pad and I just started, I don't know what possessed me, but I just started, I just started jotting down some rhymes and I wrote my first verse, you know, I wrote my first 16 bar verse. And then during do you, that, do you remember it? Um, not, not word for word. Um, I remember that it was it was quite introspective. It was actually, funnily enough, it was about what's going on in the world, right? Like, uh. yeah, it was about like just looking at the world and going, man, what's what's going on? And things are things are feeling a little bit strange, and people aren't appreciating what they have. That was kind of the general the general vibe of it. Mm -hmm. And then um, I spent about four or five weeks in Nigeria, and during that time, I I just kept writing. And then I got back to uh, university. I was studying at Oxford at the time. I was a computer science student. And one of my friends named Chris actually had a basic recording set up in his dorm room. So I downloaded some beats off the internet. This is prior to SoundCloud. There was a website called SoundClick. And oh, right, yeah, SoundClick. Yeah, you remember SoundClick? Yep. And <laughs> yeah. producers used to put their beats up there and rappers yeah. and singers would put their tracks up. So I downloaded some beats off of that. And um, the first song I ever made was called The Bad Man. Uh, so it was just a track. I was just kind of rapping about how cool I was. It didn't have some deep, deep meaning or anything. So I made that song and then I followed it up with another two. One was called Oh No and one was called Tonight. So those were my, my first three songs. And I just sent them out to my friends, my family. I was playing them to friends in my university and everything like that. And people were like, hey man, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, you got, you got some skills. There's something there. So I got, I got positive feedback and I just kept going. And then after about 10 months, I had enough tracks written and recorded to put out an album. And I thought, well, okay, I can, I can do something DIY here. Um, from very early on, from the beginning, I had that independent and entrepreneurial mindset of, and, and 
to frame it, this is at the same time where these programs like X Factor and uh, you know, like the Pop Idol and all of these music TV shows, people thought that was the way to go, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to be big, you've got to get Simon Cowell to approve you. You need to go on TV and right. have the people vote for you and text in and whatever. And I was just like, I'm not going to wait for anyone's permission. I don't need some suit's permission to do this. So I literally Googled, how do you, how do you make CDs? And I got my, if you look at my first album cover, uh, the album's called Commercial Underground. The picture of me, I'm kind of standing to the side like that. That was just taken in my dorm room. One of my friends, <laughs> one of my friends took that photo. I got a graphic designer to, to do some editing and stuff. And I first just made 50 CDs and I sold all of them in a matter of days. And then wow. I took that money and I made a hundred. And I sold them all. I was selling them for five pounds each at the time. So I guess that would, at the time that would have converted to like seven or eight, maybe $8. Yeah. About seven, $8. And then um, I made a hundred. I sold those hundred. I went back and I think my third one was a thousand. So I made a thousand CDs. So I quickly got to a point where I'd obviously everyone, all my friends had already bought it. All my family members had bought it, friends of friends and so on. And then well, it sounded like from, from your family, like those hundred CDs probably yeah. just your family. <laughs> just your immediate family. Yeah. So it, it, you know, and, and people liked it. People, people really liked it. And that's when I started uh thinking, man, this is funny thinking back. So this is in the MySpace days. So this is prior right. to Facebook being what it is, prior to Instagram, prior to YouTube being big, prior to streaming, all of that. And this is when MySpace was the most popular. Uh, platform. And I remember I had 29,000 followers on MySpace wow. friends. And I was like, Oh, cool. I've got 29,000. You know, if just 5% of them buy it, I'll sell thousands. And I quickly learned, okay, it's surprisingly hard to get people on MySpace to buy stuff. And um, so I had boxes and boxes of CDs. And I knew that in the past, I would bought CDs from people in the street, I'd met rappers when I was, when I'd go to London or some other cities, I'd get stopped in the street by people. And I bought, you know, good, good CDs too. I bought some good albums off independent artists. So I thought, Hmm, maybe I could sell my music that way. Mm-hmm. So I started going out into the street. I started out in Oxford and eventually I started going to London and I would just go out, you know, put 20 to 40 CDs in my bag and go out there with my, my headphones, my MP3 player. This is before, you know, I even had music on a, on a smartphone and um, I would just talk to people on the street, be polite, be kind, introduce myself to people, play them some of my songs and say, hey, this is my CD. Um, I'm an independent artist. It's five pounds. If you want to buy it and support, it's up to you. I'd appreciate it. And I ended up selling over 3000 copies of wow. my very first album. So that is what long answer to this question, but that's what set off the real spark of number one. Oh, OK, I can rap. This is something I can do creatively. And then oh, this is something I can make money from and which I can do as more than just a hobby. This is something I could potentially earn a living from. So by the time I left university, I had it in mind that, yeah, I think this is, I think this is what I want to do. That's so crazy. Right? I feel like in some ways we were, we were destined to meet because so much of your story parallels with mine. Mm. Um, I mean, I was a military brat. My mom was in the army. I grew up, uh, I was born in, in uh, Germany. And then, mm. you know, we moved to Virginia for a little bit, but then we moved over to Belgium. And when I was in Belgium, this was like my prepubescent years. And so I had friends, you know, again, from all over. And uh, so that, that kind of peppered my experiences. But then I discovered um, hip hop, it was around like 14 years old. And uh, I think Biggie Smalls had just come out with Life After Death. 
Ooh. And um, I, I don't know how I got a hold of it, but it sort of just blew me away because I was like, they're cursing? Oh my goodness. And, um, but after that, um, I, I really, really got into it. I was already, you know, I'd already been writing kind of like poetry and short fiction and stuff like that. But then, um, you know, they, they back in back in those times, this was like the late 90s. So they had websites like rapmusic.com. Um, there's another one called urbanprowlers.net that I would post uh, like battle raps at. And mm. then um, when I was in college, um, you know, I would, um, I had, there was a, there was a, um, a game, a game, I guess today would technically would be an app today, but it was a game called an MTV music generator for the PlayStation one. And so I would just like make beats and uh, play them for my friends in high school. And then in college, you know, we'd be crammed into my little dorm room <laughs> and like just doing, just like just doing ciphers and freestyling. Mm -hmm. And um, I would go up to some open mics and, um, and, and there's, there's, there's gotta be footage of me out there somewhere where I was at this house party and this dude, this, uh, this sort of, he looked kind of like a tweaker, but the, you know, some random like white dude who was one of my classmates, you know, I'm in theater school or whatever. And um, he started beatboxing. And so we, I just started rapping. We're like, just going for like half an hour, just off the top of the head. Yeah. And, um, and I was posting like vert, like battle verses uh, and he's like the different leagues. And then I, I got like this little, like this little uh, $20 Logitech microphone. And I, I would start recording diss tracks. So like there, so it's like, <laughs> I, so there, there's like, if sound clicks still existed, like people, you know, if they were really, really, really diligent, they could find maybe some diss tracks that I recorded uh, uh, way back in the day. But, you know, I was so, I was really, really so into, um, like the the history and the culture and like the five elements and um, you know you mentioned all these groups and it, I, I I can't I'm so blown away by just how just just the diversity of sound that we that we were blessed with like in the 90s and early 2000s from like you know we had Wu Tang and uh, and uh, like the guys on the West Coast and then I was really a big fan of like you know Common uh, Talib mm -hmm. Kweli a tribe mm -hmm. called Quest all those guys and Eminem and Busta Rhymes who's one of my favorites. Um, you know, it just, it's such a huge, huge range of, um, of, um, of, of sounds. And I think also just the power of, um, the power of language, which again, is, has been a recurring theme um, on this particular show. Um, just, you know, I listened to, um, have you ever heard, um, uh, it was a common, back when he was Common Sense, his, his album Resurrection? I have, yeah. Oh my gosh, like that, that, that first track where he's just, you know, I, I ride the rhythm like a, uh, I ride the rhythm like a windpipe, when in dim light, I use insight to enlighten, rise from ish to skin tight, words of wisdom well from my windpipe. He's just going on and on and on. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this is so unbelievably dope. How can anyone not love this? And, uh, you know, it's just such a, I think some people kind of mistaken and the, the, all they see is like the violent, uh, the violent stuff. And, you know, and there's so much uh, popular hip hop music that's uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, it's really kind of party music, but it's, but it, it, it sort of revolves around more ghetto culture. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, misogynistic language and, and, you know, I'm like, okay, how many, how many ways can you creatively rap about killing people and selling drugs? Can we please do something else? You know, do you, do you know, what's funny about that question you just asked? I know, I know that was a rhetorical question, but the answer, the honest answer is quite a lot of ways because older rappers used to do it in a very creative way. <laughs> that is true. That is, I, well, but, I, it was, but it was fresher back then, right? It was, before it, it became fresher, normalized, yeah. before it became normalized. Yeah. It was fresher. It was also just lyrically better. That, mm. that is the truth. I mean, th there's always been, there's always been nonsense rap, right? There's always been party rap. There's always been the for a long time there's been the gangster stuff the party stuff the drug dealing stuff whatever right? i mean you look at tupac and biggie two of the greats i mean a lot of their music was around that a lot of jay-z's music is around that but it was the wordplay the dexterity like the the flow the i think what's happened now is 
a lot of the subject matter is heavily skewed towards that, but also there's no, there's no wordplay. There's no witty punchlines. There's no like flows that make you go, Whoa, like, you know, did you just hear what he said? It's just like, you're, you're sitting there and waiting and you know, this is going to make us sound like, sound like boomers. Right. But it's just that, you know, people, <laughs> oh, you know, I just, I just like the vibe. I just like the beat. And I'm like, you know, like, that's cool. But the, the wordplay and lyricism has definitely fallen in the mainstream because to be a mainstream popular rapper, you had to be dope. There was a time when you had to actually be yeah. like, you had to be dope. If I think back to people who in the nineties or in the early thousands were considered like less on the less lyrical end, if you listen to them now, they, they sound like considerably better. You, you can see how much the bar has fallen in terms of actual lyricism and wordplay. And I think that's why you do get so many people who aren't really into hip hop and all they hear is the mainstream stuff, right? They're in the car and they switch the radio and they hear something or they're going out and they hear something. And the truth is much of that is, you know, pretty brainless and, and negative and, you know, the, the content, the wordplay, the lyricism, all of that, it's not, it's not the greatest representation of hip hop. It's not that, it's not that yeah. common verse that you were, that you were just rapping there. So I think there are plenty of people who aren't really into hip hop, who don't even really realize how much of an art form it is. I think someone who's really yeah. into hip hop, um, especially someone who's a bit older, you, you realize, oh, actually there's a lot of, I mean, I, I don't think any genre has better wordplay and lyricism than, than hip hop. It's, uh, you know, and it's funny you mentioned, because uh, even the, the quote unquote old guys, the boomers that are still around, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so amazed by someone like Eminem, who just seems to keep on improving mm -hmm. um, it, as he gets older and kind of changing with the times. And I, th I don't think people really, really grasp the level of dexterity, musculature, um, just, just, just even staying on time in a beat. Yes. You know, like, like, I mean, even I think of someone like Talib Kweli, for instance, like you listen to his early stuff from like the, the, the sound bombing days, the raucous records days. And he was like cramming so many words into a bar. Um, but now, you know, he's, he's become way more technically, uh, uh, technically proficient in what he's doing, but it's, it's, you know, but, but like someone like Eminem will cram a lot of words into a bar, but it will still be, you know, it'll be like on the 16th notes and all like, it's, it's so precise and on time. Mm -hmm. And then, and it's, how do you elongate, you know, your different syllables and how do you, you know, it, it's, uh, and, and just playing with different phonemes and, and sounds and, and matching those. And, you know, the rules are kind of different for rhyme and rap. And, and I, I, I do, I, I do kind of despair that, uh, I mean, nowadays, like one thing I noticed that used, it used to be, I mean, used to be, used to be back in the day where it was like, <laughs> we all sound like boomers a little bit, but <laughs> it's, you know, rappers wanted to be, um, they wanted to be big. They had to have a, a sort of presence. And now you see mm. so many rappers who are like, you know, baby, Lil this, Lil that, mm. and then they rap and it's so kind of lazy. And da, 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 da. and I'm okay, you're rapping in triplets, you know, I understand that, but it's like, we ain't really, we ain't really doing that much. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, it's just, it, it's not, it's not really grabbing me in, in the way that it, that it used to. And again, it's really briefly too. Like, I remember I, I feel like so, so much of it is so homogenized now too. There, this was um, like a 2014, I did a, like a throwback Thursday where I looked at the top 25 like um, rap singles uh, from 1994 and compared that list to 2014. Mm. And um, the I think in the, the 1994 list, there were like over at least 20 different artists that were represented. I mean, you have people like MC Light, Tribe mm. Called Quest, like all kinds of people that were represented and people were listening to all of it. Mm -hmm. But then in the 2014 list, it was seven people. 
it was like Jay-Z, uh, uh, Drake. Eminem, Drake, like uh, Macklemore, mm -hmm. you know, like, like just, and, and I was like, you know, Lupe, I think Lupe Fiasco might've been on it as well. Okay, interesting. But uh, it was just so, it, it sort of confirmed for me this idea that uh, everything has become so kind of, not just commoditized, but, but just, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just so, I think hom so homogenized. Same. Homogenized is the yeah. right word. Yeah. So it's so samey, and they're, they're you know, and I, I, I sort of chuckle when I hear um, you know more conservative commentators who who say gangster rap, but they but they really mean all rap, not not understanding <laughs> that it's like <laughs> that is like just a subgenre of <laughs> of rap. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it's just it's such a a, a hugely powerful um, um, medium, and it's taken over the world. So I get kind of pissed off when you hear people say like, you know, no one's listening to black people. I'm like, dude, you had a bunch of poor blacks and Latinos in New York City who yeah. just made this thing. And it was dismissed at first as a fad. And then it just, it became this worldwide phenomenon for better or for worse. But, um, but you know, a lot of people don't know that. I mean, yeah. you, you have to remember that most, most people in America, most Americans never leave America. Mm. All right. And I'd imagine, I don't know the stats, but I imagine that number is even lower um, for black Americans. And yeah. with that comes oftentimes just a, a certain lack of perspective and knowledge of what is going on outside the, the, the borders of the USA. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people realize how big and popular hip hop and rap music is in Germany, the Czech Republic, Iceland, Poland, Slovakia, like, Dude. Romania, just all over, all over the Japan. I mean, I haven't been to Japan myself, but I know it's massive in Japan. Um, and I think a lot of people don't really realize that. I mean, people are only just grasping onto the fact that like British hip hop and British rap is <laughs> exists and is, I mean, I remember even when I was, when I was 20, Americans used to just, I mean, it's, it's interesting now when I'm in the USA and I'm in a gym or something and I hear them play like some British rap songs, because that, that used to be unheard of. That only started about a decade ago. Before that, it was always like, man, like the accents are a little too, it's a little too weird or people thought it was corny <laughs> yeah, right. or this or that. I mean, it's only somewhat recently with artists like Stormzy, Skepta, uh, some of the drill artists and the grime artists that are actually able to do do big shows over here in, in the USA. But prior to that, it was always just like, nah, like that, that UK stuff is kind of weird, let alone another language, let alone French hip hop or German or Polish or something. But um, it's truly global. Well, like the, one of the biggest um, trap songs from a few years ago was was by these dudes in Japan, and mm. I listened to it. I'm like, yo, this one is hard. <laughs> it's like I, I can't. I don't know the language, but it was like Kani <laughs> Kalima. I was like, yo, this shit slap like a motherfucker. And then, but then on top of that, yo, I mean, you can go online, right? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm really big into battle rap as well. I mean, I love mm. um, you know, seeing people battle each other. Um, you know, it's one of the few places left. You know, I had a, vo a voice uh, and speech teacher in uh, acting school. Uh, talk about how there's very few places outside of maybe politics where language is used, uh, used persuasively. And um, I'm thinking to myself, no, dude, like go, you know, go to these underground battle rap, you know, how the, 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 the you know, they're totally destroying each other lit lyrically, but the, the wordplay, the musculature that, 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 that they use is the same that we, that, that we try to, to develop when we do Shakespeare. And, um, but you can find people battle rapping in Bogota, Australia, um, you know, Africa. One of the biggest, um, one of the biggest uh, battle rap uh, uh, battles that took place was uh, between this um, Lebanese American uh, 
battle rapper named Disaster, and I can't oh, yeah. and I can't remember what the what the Russian rapper's name was, like Oxy something or other. It's got it's got tens of millions of views right now. And um, side note, it's really funny because the Russian rapper is sort of more red pilled than um than the american rappers are so he's so this russian guy is like dropping references to like paul joseph watson and like all kinds of other stuff oh, interesting and, and, and right and the american crowd is like i don't know what he's talking about oh okay. you know, it, it was it was but but you know it just goes back into that point where it's just it's just worldwide phenomenon and and mm -hmm. uh, it really is a great i feel like hip-hop is such a great example of how of the universality of art and how it can really um, transcend so many barriers, even language barriers. I mean, you get got these guys out of Africa rapping in multiple languages at just ridiculous speeds. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's so, it's so fascinating, but I feel like we it's, can talk. It's true. Yeah, we can, man. Yeah. But yeah, quickly before we move on, I mean, yeah. I, I think, I think that rap as an art form is actually massively underappreciated. Yeah, I agree. I think that hip hop, hip hop music and rap music and kind of the rap pop and all of the, all of the sides of that are, are you know well known and are popular and but i don't think that i don't think that many people truly get like how dope rap as an art form is and can be right when yeah. you're talking about whether you're talking about battle rap or you're just talking about uh rapping musicians who do it really well like you're talking about an eminem like so many people like and appreciate eminem but i think even people who casually think that he's cool don't know just how dope he is yeah you, you, you see what i mean like they might be like, oh cool i like i like that bit in rap god where he raps fast but it's like you're not like the internal rhymes and the timing and exactly what he's saying because some of the punchlines are going right over people's heads and it's like there's so much there's so much in there he's really using his voice as an instrument and as a as a weapon almost as a tool and i, I think if you've rapped yourself like you've rapped and I, I'm, I rap so you can you appreciate on a different level the, the technicality, just like if I see someone yeah. playing guitar, like I, I'm not really into the guitar, so I can hear it and be like, oh, that sounds nice. But I'm not going to be seeing like he could be doing some crazy technique with his hands and with the strings. And I, I don't really appreciate it because I, I just don't know the instrument that well. So I feel right. that same way with rap where I'm like, no, like you're not hearing like, did you hear what he just did? I can't like, believe he yeah. just did that. I can't believe he yeah. just did that. You know what I mean? Like, how is a human being even able to do all of that? You know yeah. what I mean? It's just, it's so, uh, yeah, man, I just, I, I, I love it. I want, I would, I do want to get back into it, man. It's just, such, you know, maybe, maybe even as a hobby, we'll, we'll mm. see, but, uh, but it, it just, um, we can go on about this for hours, but, uh, <laughs> but I do, I do want to hint, uh, hit back on this idea of yourself as, you know, you, you've always had this entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, you're pushing your own, your own music, you're selling your own music. Uh, it reminds me of like Ludacris selling, uh, selling CDs out of, his, out of the trunk of his car in, in, in Atlanta, actually. Um, but what, what I, what I think is really cool about what you're doing is that, you know, you're one person and yet, you know, you have these, uh, I mean, I'm sure you'll hit a million followers on Twitter, uh, very, very, you know, in very short order, you got a podcast going, you're selling your music, you're selling books, um, you're getting booked to, you know, uh, for speaking engagements, you've got, um, yeah, uh, you know, you've, you've, um, I'm just, you know, I'm seeing you posting pictures of you flying with, you know, guys in helicopters or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the kind of stuff that like celebrities do. And I'm thinking to myself, for so for the longest time, uh, you know, I, I've thought to myself, like, you know, the the era of like the movie star or the celebrity, um, I won't, you know, I won't say it's exactly over, but it, it certainly changed a lot. And I feel like somebody like you um, have 
has uh, and have and continue to exemplify this idea that no, you know, there's there's a new sort of era, a new paradigm that's emerging right now where you don't need necessarily to have this huge machine. I mean, I think musicians sort of have have you know known this for a long time. Mm-hmm. But you don't need this huge machine anymore to like make you a star with these this huge uh, you know publicity drive. You don't need PR people. It's just it's just you. And I, I you know, and people have pointed out to me, look, you know, all these big stars, they have social media accounts. I'm, well, that's great because then they're competing with us mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for attention. And you see the kind of, um, you know, I ask people, think of a, you know, a, a, a star that, that, that you can name, you know, as far as acting goes, where, where they're in it and you're like, oh, I have to go see it because that person is in it. Um, and people now, I mean, you have TikTokers being invited to the White House for better or for worse. Um, you've got, you know, Joe Rogan and his whole, you know, phenomenon. Or, you know, I remember when uh, a few years ago in the Wall Street Journal, this hit piece on uh, on PewDiePie, the YouTuber. And I think at the time, I think their subscriber base was like maybe 12, maybe 14 million. And I'm like, dude, PewDiePie has like three times the number of people watching him. So they, they can see you're lying. Mm-hmm. And it just it just um, occurs to me that, that there's a new era of um, emerging that's really hopefully uh, the sort of decentralized um, uh, period where artists can really shine and really not only that, but really connect right uh, directly to their audience and, not, you know, not have to pay an agent any commission, not have to worry about paying, um, uh, you know, lawyer fees or, or a PR person. I think it's so. And just talk about your kind of journey going through uh, becoming uh, the Zuby that we all know and love. I think, I think it's so fascinating. People can maybe learn from it. Yeah, sure thing, man. Um, so I think it's really important to stress because so many people who know me, I mean, I would estimate, if I were to put a number on it, I would estimate that about 98% of people who know me discovered me between 2019 and now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, but as I said earlier, I put out my first album in 2006. So I'm not new to the game. I've put out nine independent music releases. I've done well, you know, about 200 shows. I've performed in eight different countries, sold over 30,000 albums before vast majority of anyone who knows me now knew, knew who I was. So it's really important to talk about those years from 2006 to 2019, because 2019 was this tipping point for me, but so much groundwork was done prior to that. So sort of continuing on with the story. So, I mean, I, I went out there and I sold my CDs independently. After I graduated from university, I took a year out and I did my music full-time for one year. So this is back in, I finished university in 2007. Um, So 2007 to 2008, I was a full-time musician. Um, I put out a second album called The Unknown Celebrity. I traveled around the UK promoting that, selling that on the street. And then in uh, autumn 2008, I moved to London and I started working in the corporate world. I was a management consultant for three years. I worked for a big, I won't name drop, but I worked for a big internationally known management consulting company. Um, I did that for three years while still moonlighting as a rapper, doing my music stuff on the side. I put out another EP during that time. And then in November, 2011, I made a big decision. Well, I I, honestly, I made the decision in January, 2011, that by the end of that year, I'd be a full-time musician. November 2011, I handed in my notice, and I've been self-employed since November 
2011, I went off, I started my company, COM Entertainment Limited, which actually stands for courtesy of myself. I don't think most mm. people like, most people don't know that. So that was the ethos from the beginning. You know, when you used to look in liner notes and it always says this rapper appears, this musician appears courtesy of Jive Records, courtesy of, right, right. so I was like, no, I'm appearing courtesy of myself, right? I don't have anyone above me. And this is really when I was just in grind mode, man. So from 2011 to 2014, I was just out there on the street five, six days a week, all over the UK, every single city and town, talking to people and selling my music. That's how I made my money. I would just go out there, talk to people, play them my tracks through my headphones. And I was talking to thousands and thousands of people every week, rain, sleet, snow. I was traveling up and down in my van, staying in crappy hotels, like eating dirt, as Gary Vee calls it, right? Just <laughs> having a lot of ups and downs, some, some really positive and fun experiences, um, but also some, some low points as well. And you have to remember, you know, I've got a computer science degree from Oxford University. I was a management consultant for three years, earning good money and on a trajectory to earn a lot more. And I just took this massive pay cut. I took this massive leap of faith. And I was just like, you know, uh, this is going to work out. I don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but I know this is going to work out. And it took an extraordinarily level, extraordinary level of, of perseverance and self-belief to, to get through those times. Cause you'd, you'd have days that were very encouraging, but you'd have days where I'd, I'd go out there, I'd travel, you know, hundred, 200 miles to go somewhere to promote my music. And I'm standing out there all day and, you know, I sell 11 CDs. Right. And then, but then, you know, you'd have days where bang, I sold, I sold 50, you know, great, cool. I sold 50, you know, I'm going into the bank two times that day to make a deposit. And I'm like, awesome, cool. I'm getting paid for my music. And you had all these ups and downs and then you have the shows, right? You'd have good shows. Then you'd have shows where again, you travel 200 miles to go do a show somewhere. There's six people in the crowd, uh, the person on the bar and the security, right? And, but you still do the best show that you can do. And these are all the things that people don't see, right? Yeah. Pe people don't see this. And also people don't talk about it because most musicians don't really like to talk about the, the, they don't really like to talk about the struggle. They don't like to talk about playing for empty venues or not having a lot of fans and so on. So when people see them, they think, oh, they just popped up. And, and what's so interesting is, uh, this is, this is also, um, you know, I remember when Eric, when uh, Ed Sheeran, was doing a, a quite similar grind in the UK when he was busking and he was just like playing all these gigs and he was just, you know, performing at these small couple hundred capacity venues. And so like, he was on my radar at that point. I was like, yo, this guy's like, this guy's going to do something. I didn't know he'd be as big as he is now, but it was so interesting. So even with someone like him, you don't hear a lot about that story, but one reason why I respect Ed Sheeran so much um, isn't because he's a celebrity pop star is because man he 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 did that grind he really really work. did that grind and i saw it like i saw it myself so i was like dude that's awesome like that's the person that's also how i know if he wants to be performing into his 70s he can do it he's got the groundwork so i did all this and then in 2014 i actually started selling my music and my merchandise in in shopping malls so i noticed i'd observed that when i go to shopping malls i see these little booths and kiosks where independent uh independent entrepreneurs are selling their stuff. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's beard oil or it's their soap or coffee or t-shirts or whatever. And I was like, Hmm, 
maybe instead of being out there in the cold, in the British weather, right. in the cold and in the snow all the time, what about if, let, let me, and I, I literally, I, I went to the, um, I went to the commercialization manager in the, in the mall. And I was like, Hey, how can I, how, how can I get one of these? And they were like, you know, it costs this much. Like what's your email? We'll email you. And we chatted and eventually boom, lo and behold, uh, the blue and purple store was founded. So this was a pop-up shop founded by myself, um, my friend Shouto, who's another independent rapper from the UK. Mm. And we started doing monthly pop-up shops. So instead of just being out on the street all the time, we'd then be in the shopping malls, still grinding our butts off and talking to way too many people. But it was a, it was a step up from what we were doing before. And then fast forward a little. So hundreds of thousands of people spoken to, hundreds of thousands of rejections, being ignored hundreds of thousands of times, um, but selling tens of thousands of albums and lots of merchandise in the process leads up to early 2019. And there was something very serendipitous about this because what most people don't know is I was at my pop-up shop when I posted that viral deadlift tweet. <laughs> so I'd been standing there. So let, let me explain this day. So this is February 26, 2019. I love it. This was the first pop-up shop. So my friend, my friend Shouto, who'd been my business, my business partner for the past four years, he actually got an opportunity to work at one of the music colleges in the UK. And so he wanted to step away from the, from the store to focus on this and some other things he was doing. So in February, 2019, that was my first time doing a pop-up store completely alone, completely by myself. And I didn't know, it's really not a one-man job. And I didn't know if I could really do it by myself or, or if I wanted to, I'd been doing it for four years at this time. It was kind of getting boring. You know, I'm a creative, I'm an artist. I don't want to just be a salesman and sell, selling, selling, selling all the time. So I went to the gym that morning. I had a good workout. I came, come back to the store because we had to be open from 9am. You have to be open all the, all the hours that the mall is open. So oh, even wow. though no one's trying to buy my merchandise at 9am, I have to be there. So I'm just standing by my shop, killing some time, scrolling through Twitter. And I see multiple stories about um, biological males beating women in their sports. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is something that had been on my radar for a couple of years. I saw this Fallon Fox situation and MMA right, right. and a few other things. And I, I saw two stories, I think both in the USA, both in high school. And I was like, this is silly. You know, I was kind of shaking my head just like, this is, this is nonsense. And then, and then I thought, I wonder what the British women's deadlift record is. <laughs> So I did a quick search on Google and I was like, oh, okay. In my weight class, it was uh, 200 and 210 kilos. And my personal best is 275. I was like, oh, and then on my phone, I already had a video of me doing 230 from one of my previous training oh, sessions. Hilarious. So I just go on Twitter. I grab that video and I'm like, I keep hearing about how biological men have no strength advantage over women in 2019. So watch me destroy the British women's deadlift record without trying. P.S. I identified as a woman whilst lifting the weight. Don't be a bigot. <laughs> Send. <laughs> so I, I, I was not um, at the, the history, time. I, history was made. Dude, I, I had 18,000. Again, to frame it, I had 18,000 followers at the time. One eight. 18,000. Wow. After 10 years on Twitter. I've been on Twitter since 2009. It's 2019. I'm at 18,000. I put this tweet out there just thinking this is going to get a couple of LOLs couple of shares. I think it's kind of funny. And I'm just looking at my phone and I'm like, what is, what's happening? What is going on? Bro, the numbers were just ticking. They were just moving. 
Within 10 minutes, the video had 10,000 views. Wow. I was like, I don't know what I've done, but within an hour, boom, 50 something thousand, 100,000, 200,000. By the time I go to bed that evening, 300,000. I wake up in the morning, half a million. Bro, this video was going bananas. Right. I, right. At this time, I look at my thing, whoa, I'm at 25,000 followers, 30,000 followers. It went nuts. I saw it getting retweeted all over. It, it started going into the USA. I started seeing influ like big influencers that I'd heard of in the USA tweeting it out and sharing it in the UK, in Australia, in Canada. I'm just like, I, I don't know what's going on. So for honestly, for and this continued for about two weeks, I didn't even know. I'd never gone viral before. I didn't have a big <laughs> And then the media started contacting me. So after about Wow. After the first day, the media starts. So BBC reach out. They, hey, you know, we've just seen your, we've seen your post. We want to talk to you about it. Or when have you got time to talk to us on the radio? They start reaching out to me here, there, everywhere. You know, I, oh, Fox News want to talk to me. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll talk to Fox News. I'll talk to these people, whatever. And then um, I wake up one morning and my WhatsApp messages and my Twitter inbox are blowing up and people are like, yo, yo. Yo, Joe Rogan just Joe Rogan just shouted you out on his podcast. Yo, oh, Zuby, wow. like Joe Rogan. I was like, wait, like wh what's going on? Uh, you know, and then and then I go and I look at my I've got a DM from Joe Rogan on Twitter saying, bro, I just saw your video. That's like the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> da, da, da. And I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> like, I'm just an independent rapper from from the south coast of England. Now, like, I'm, I'm like, wait, what's going on? And I go and I check out the latest ep episode of his podcast. And they did a whole like two minute segment where they pull it up and they're talking about it. And then he, you know, gives me a big shout out and starts fun. So boom. Okay. Now I'm at 50,000 followers. And then bro, this just kept going. And what I think what's really important to, to note is that I've been grinding since 2006 and I've always, and I was like, I need an opportunity, right? I need an opportunity for the world to see what I can do and what I'm capable of. And I thought, okay, that will come directly through my music, but, um, as we say, God works in mysterious ways. And I put out something completely disconnected, which I didn't think right. was going to cause any kind of storm or controversy. And next thing I know, I'm next thing, you know, Ben Shapiro is reaching out to me, Dave Rubin, all these different people, like some of these podcasts that I've been watching over in the USA. And then I'm like, okay, maybe I need to go out to the States. And Dave Rubin invited me to go to his show, The Rubin Report in L.A., Joe Rogan was in LA at the time. So uh, I know I'm going to LA. I messaged Joe and I'm like, Hey man, um, I'm going to be in LA. You know, it'd be an honor to it'd be an honor to talk to you. And he was like, hell yeah. Like let's, let's get this book. So I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. Oh, so I've got, I've got the Rubin report and the Joe Rogan experience in the chamber. And I go out to the California for the first time in my life. And then the, the dominoes just keep going. Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire reach out to me to do the Sunday special. Tucker Carlson's team reaches out to me, this person, that person. I ended up staying in the States for three months, wow. um, just doing all these shows. This is back in 2019, uh, pre-pandemic. Pre, pre and all of a sudden, I've got a following in, in the US, which I'd never had at any time in my career before. I also started my podcast in 2019, so that was able to benefit from this increase in interest. Um, I wrote and released my first book, Strong Advice in 2019 as well. So 2019 was this very sort of catalytic transformative year for me where all this attention was gained, but then I was able to maintain it and sustain it because this 
tweet wasn't a flash in the pan. People were like, oh, actually, oh, oh, he does music. He's got, okay, this, oh, this guy's interesting. He's funny. He's articulate. He's smart. This is someone who's got stuff to say about what's happening in this whole conversation. So I was able to take that honestly quite silly, <laughs> quite, quite a silly, a silly flashpoint and turn it into something much bigger so that even three years now beyond that, the momentum continues and things continue to grow. And I'm not just that one guy who had that one funny tweet once, but it's hard for me to really describe what I do now, but it's influencing millions of people around the world and lots of people are valuing it. So that's, uh, that's the story. Well, it's so, it's so fascinating to, you know, for one, it sort of proves the rule that, um, I mean, there's, a, there's exceptions, obviously, but there, there's no overnight successes. Um, but also, it, it, I just laugh because there are people who, um, I mean, first of all, um, I remember, um, I think it was Whoopi Goldberg, she was on, in, she was on uh, Inside the Actor Studio, and uh, she talked about how um, uh, fame, striving for fame, like fame is actually a very small goal. And, you know, if you if you are looking for that, then you're going to have a very, very tough time. And yet there are still so many people who that's all they want. I think especially now uh, when when fame, whatever that even means now is so easily accessible. I mean, I say now that it's really not about and you prove this rule, too. It's not about uh, being famous now. It's about going viral. Like it's a, it's a it's a new different era. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I'm just chuckling because there are people who strive uh, as hard as they can just to become famous, uh, you know, deliberately, but you did it on accident. <laughs> Yo, I mean, well, I, I mean, sort of, sort of. I mean, I was trying to become famous, like, but with my music, right? Yeah, that's, I, well, that's I, what I mean. It's yeah, like, yeah, I, I was trying. And then it just came through this side door, <laughs> like, like, because I mean, something that I did not. Um, so there are many people who think that I sat down and I like, I like plotted this publicity stunt that I, I sat there. And I was like, Hmm, what's a, what's a, what's a culture war topic I can touch on. That's going right, to create. Right. And I was like, dude, there's no way I could have predicted that that video was going to get millions of views and catch the eye of all these. Like, how can you, you, you can't, you, you can't manufacture that. It was just totally natural. And it was, I think it was the combination of the timing and the fact that there was a video, the, the humorous aspect of it, and the fact that it was also sort of a, it was, it was this checkmate move, right? Because, I mean, it's crazy. We're still having this conversation three and a half years later. Right. But for several years leading to that, the, the thing had been, you know, a woman is anyone who identifies as a woman. Um, and so I said, okay. I mean, you see lots of people putting out very, you know, rational and logical and reason and, and biology-based arguments as to why this doesn't make sense. But I instead said, okay, I'll accept that. I'll take, I'll take, let me take that. And let me show, let me not tell you, let me show you why this doesn't make sense. Right. So I'm there, like, you know, I, I just walk up to the bar. I've got my beard, my muscles. You know? <laughs> and people just watch the video and they're like, oh my gosh, like this, this, this madman did it. You know, <laughs> this, 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 uh, this, this, this pinnacle of this mass, this unit, this absolute specimen. Is it, but you know, but, I, but but you know what, what's interesting though, as well, is that um, you know, but but you at the moment and all the things that have happened after that, mm. um, it, it's a culmination of of everything you had done before, not just musically, but just your experiences. I mean, I, I think back to um, when I went to 
my fancy conservatory. And uh, the woman at the time who ran the program, a wonderful, brilliant woman named Zelda Fitchhandler, who really changed my life in a lot of ways, as cliche as it may be to sound, uh, it, it, as cliche as it may sound. Um, but she said that she wanted, um, she wanted actors, she wanted performers who were soulful and who uh, were citizens of the world, so to speak. And I know that, that kind of triggers some people when you, when you say that, but you, know, but you really are, you really are a citizen of the world and all those experiences, all of those influences, um, they, you know, they, they shaped uh, how you view things, they shaped you know, how you articulate yourself, they, they shaped um, in many ways who you are. So even if, so I guess what I'm getting at is that you, you know, with that video, you could have just been like, it could have just been a flash in the pan kind of a thing, but you already had this foundation built up of, of all these other uh, traits uh, and attributes that you were able to, that, that people were able to discover all these new layers. And, and it goes back to this idea of now uh, in terms of like, you know, about uh, what, a, what a star is, because I think what's also really cool about the era that we live in now, um, it can be cool. Can, it can, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword, honestly, but um, it goes back to this idea that now you have ac direct access to the people, to your followers, to your fans or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think what's interesting about now is that when you do something like, like you did with that video, um, there, is no, there is no person in Hollywood who would have dared <laughs> who would ever have dared to do anything like that and and i think you know like when and it really it really hit home for me when i watched um i saw robert downey jr on on rogan's podcast and i was like oh great man i love rdj's you know he's so funny and he's got a great story yada yada, yada. and he was promoting um his dr doolittle film and i just sat there watching it and again you know i i i love rdj and his whole story and his whole journey you know one of the great sort of redemption uh, arcs um in hollywood but I just felt like I was watching something that was so kind of kind of corporate and very sanitized and very sort of um, surface level. Whereas um, now we we have all this access now to all these different stars and we're finding a that they're kind of not that smart and that they're not really that interesting. But that's why back in the studio system, you had I mean, they had the whole uh, publicity teams to kind of manage and massage their actors uh, um, uh, persona, public personas, personae, and mm -hmm. will clean up, clean up their messes. But now, you know, it's like, okay, we're, we're kind of on equal footing with, uh, with people. I mean, I'm not, you know, another unit like the rock, you know what I mean? Like, but, but we're, we're competing for the same kind of, uh, of space. So it's so fascinating now. And, and, and hopefully you'll see more and more people, um, take advantage of that in the future. Um, we're, so we're, we're coming up, we're coming up on an hour, man. I, I wanted to get into you, get, get into you. That's really weird. Um, <laughs> what is a woman? We, we, we can, we can go, we can go longer, man. You don't need to cut it in an hour unless you want to. Well, I, I also have to go to work. Oh, you got to go. Us, oh, some of us okay. still have to work for a little. Oh, sorry uh, about that, man. Yeah, well, it's, it's my fault. It's, it's, the <laughs> it's the culmination of all my bad choices in life. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's just, uh, ah, I think also it's a, it's a, um, it's a classic in, in showbiz. You have to leave them wanting more. Oh, that's all good, so, man. So, uh, so tell people how they can uh, how they can follow you if they don't already, which they probably do. But uh, just letting people know how they can access you and find all your stuff because you're great, dude. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, sure thing. So you can find me on all social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All the same handle, at Zuby Music. That is Z-U-B-Y Music. I've just released a new children's book, which is called The Candy Calamity. It's about health, fitness, and the importance of taking care of your body. And you can get that at candycalamity.com.